Lafayette Community Church. Our app, click on the message logo at the top of the app when you open it up, and you'll be on the same digital page as all the rest of us. Whatever shows up on the screen will pop up right there on your device. And today we're going to be bouncing around to a lot of scripture. We're going to read the vast majority of 1 Corinthians 11 if we make it through. And uh, I just got to pray for us because we got to jump into it. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guide our time. Would you just do the work here in this moment to help us understand what your word is saying, what the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate to these people in Corinth so long ago? Would you give us wisdom and understanding beyond ourselves? Father, I pray you would guard the words that I speak and the thoughts in all of our hearts and that you would shape what happens here in this moment to be according to your will for your glory and your good purpose in this world. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a series called Get It Together because of two things. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth. Remember, Corinth was this metropolitan kind of area where it was kind of like Las Vegas and New York and Los Angeles all rolled into one, a really messed up place. And so Paul writes this letter largely to smack them in the face and to say, you got to get your act together and one, be holy, and two, you got to get together and be unified with each other. He's upset with them for these two reasons. They haven't been living the holy life they should, and they haven't been living in unity with each other. And so the way he attacks this problem is by starting saying, Jesus is above all other things. I'm the one who brought you Jesus, and so pay attention to me as I teach you about Jesus. Jesus is above all these other things, and if you're going to follow him and pay attention to him, then you need to be unified with each other, and you need to be holy. And then he addresses a number of different issues. We've talked about some of them. You can go and listen to the previous ones on YouTube and on our website. But last week specifically, he addressed this idea that under Jesus, we should be free to express what it means to be created in God's image. You know, there's this kind of freedom that we should have, but we cannot live our freedom totally. Our freedom needs to be limited in certain specific areas. And so last week we talked about how our freedom needs to be limited so that we are a blessing to the people around us. And today, we're going to find some ways where Paul is trying to describe to them limitations on their freedom so that the people around them get blessed. And he does two things in chapter 11. One of them is really easy to talk about, and one of them is really difficult to talk about. The one that's easy to talk about is he gives some rules for potlucks. Spoiler alert, he says, wait for everybody to get there before you start. I might not get to that, okay? But that's his rule for for potlucks. And it's applying also to the kind of potluck that includes the spiritual meal of communion with each other. I'd love to talk about that in detail. I might not because I might not get there, okay? But here we go. The first, the other thing, the first thing he talks about that's really difficult to talk about is he says women need to put something on their heads to honor the men around them. Yeah. He says that. Okay, so we're going to have to deal with that one, and we're going to spend a lot more time on that one than on the potluck one, because that one is just simply harder to deal with. And um, it's even harder than hard to deal with because there's a translation problem. In fact, there are a couple problems. There's a translation problem in that there's wide divergence on how you translate this passage because Paul writes a Greek that is very poetic in this chapter. But there's another problem, not just translation. The other problem is history. Paul is talking about a practice in the church where women wore something covering their heads and men did not. The problem is that there is no ancient evidence of any culture that ever did this. In fact, there's no Jewish culture evidence for women wearing something on their heads. There's no Gentile culture about women wearing something on their heads. It just doesn't happen. You can look at ancient religious uh, pictures, and some women will be wearing hats and some women won't. Some men will be wearing hats and some men won't. You can talk about the ancient Jewish practices, and some of you might know that Jewish men sometimes wear a prayer shawl when they're praying. It's this uh, prayer thing that covers their, their head 
bed. It's a, like a towel or a blanket or something. That practice didn't start until years after Jesus, years after Paul, decades, centuries even. We don't know when it started, but it certainly wasn't going on at the time of Jesus. And so the whole idea of men wearing something on their heads or something on your heads representing prayer didn't really happen in the ancient world around Paul's time. There was no consistency. On top of that, Paul says in this chapter that this practice is adopted by all the churches universally. This is something that all the churches did, and that's really the problem. You see, if all the churches did it, there's no reason to talk about it, right? Because all the churches just did it. It's like we've never once put on our website what brand of guitar we use, you know? Because that's just one of those things that we feel is insignificant. It's unimportant. It's just, okay, so what? It doesn't matter what brand of guitar is on the stage. And so the people back then, there was this practice that was so widely done that they never wrote down any of the details. Okay, so we have a historical problem. And the historical problem, we basically have to conclude, we don't know what was going on back then. And in this passage we read today, Paul doesn't give us any sort of recipe for what should happen in details. Instead, he tells us why. What we're going to do is we're going to focus on the why. And we're going to analyze Paul's why to try to determine if we can apply his why to our world today. But before we can understand his why, we have to understand the text that he wrote, and there's some problems there. So I'm going to walk you through a couple different English translations to just identify some of the problems. Some of them seem like small problems, but one of them seems like a big one, okay? So let me mention the first one. Back in 1984, there was a translation called the NIV, and it translates verse 2 this way. I'm going to put it on the screen. It says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. This is a minor discrepancy from a better translation. The old NIV 84 used the words teachings to refer to something that all the other translations these days now use the word traditions. And that's good because it was actually what Paul was talking about was the tradition. See, the problem is teaching refers to something you might put in your head, but tradition is something you all do together. And that's a difference. And so the older NIV was slightly inaccurate that they, I mean, you still teach people traditions, but it's slightly inaccurate because the word Paul was getting at was more what you do in your church, not just what you teach in the church. But I want to take you to verse 10 because verse 10 is the one with the biggest problems in it. And first, we're going to look at it in the 1984 NIV. Let's go to verse 10. He says, for this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Now I put in yellow the phrase a sign of because that phrase does not show up in the Greek. The NIV in 1984 said what we need to do is we need to talk about authority and that women need to somehow represent authority and that the head covering they wear should represent the authority over them. And so that's why we're going to translate this sign of authority. There's just one problem. If you remove the word sign of Does the sentence change meaning? Well, let me just say it. A woman should have a symbol of authority on her head. Or, a woman should have authority over her own head. Is there a difference? A woman should have a sign of authority, or a woman should have authority. (laughs) That sounds like there's a pretty big difference there. And so when you take that word out, it means something significantly different. In the Greek language, it's not there. And so then the debate is, well, what what do we do with this verse? Well, we're going to talk about that verse a little later on, but I'm going to look at it now in the ESV translation. The ESV translation, ordinarily a very good translation, in this passage says that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. They also add the word symbol, but they make another change. They change the word woman to the word wife. Now, if you say a woman should have authority, that's one thing. But then if you say a wife should have a symbol of authority on her head, now it sounds an awful lot like what you're wearing, that thing that they're supposed to wear, is because they're a wife. Like you put a wedding ring on their finger, and now they're also supposed to wear some sort of covering over their head to also signify they're a wife. It changes the meaning significantly, and the Greek word is just woman. And in fact, in the context here, the ESV flip-flops back and forth between woman or wife 
arbitrarily. Sometimes they translate it wife and sometimes they translate it woman and it's hard to know why. So in this case, the ESV, I don't think is getting it right. But now let's look at the next one, the New American Standard. This one was um, updated in 1995 and they say, therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. But at least they put it in italics, which says, we know this isn't in the Greek, but we still think it should be there. And so we're putting it there as English translators. We're adding these words, but we'll let you know we're adding these words by putting it in italics. The New American Standard does that all over the place. Whenever they feel they need to add a word, they'll put it in italics to let you know it wasn't in the original language. But on top of all these, some of you know I'm not a big NIV fanboy. We use it in our church partially because it's the cheapest Bible we can get that's really high quality. I'm not even joking. But uh, you know I'm not a super big NIV fanboy. But in this passage and in this whole chapter, I think they really do the best job. Take a look at what they say in verse 10. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. They leave the ambiguity in the passage. And so we get to deal with it to try to find out what it's actually saying. Is it talking about a symbol? Well, actually it can't be. Because one more thing I'll say about that. There is absolutely no occurrence in the Greek language where the phrase have authority means someone else is that authority over me. Whenever a person has authority, using this word in the Greek language, it's always the person having the authority who has the authority. It never is the person having authority. It's really just symbolic of someone else's authority over them. This word, this phrase, cannot mean that someone else has authority over this woman. This phrase must mean that she bears her own authority. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. So now with some translation discussion out of the way, we're going to stick with the NIV today, and we're going to try to understand what Paul might be saying, because I think in large measure, they do a pretty good job. So let's go ahead and jump into it. Chapter 11, verse 1. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. But you can also notice we read that last week because it's really part of the previous paragraph. We begin in verse 2. I praise you, Paul says, for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Hold on a second there. Did I or did I not tell you that 1 Corinthians was a book of Paul slapping these people in the face? He has been mad at them this whole time. He has been upset at them this whole time. He has been getting all on their case. And now in verse 2, he says, I'm proud of you. I praise you for paying attention to me in all these things and for following my traditions. He says that. How in the world can Paul say that? He says, I'm proud of you for paying attention to my traditions. He could be speaking sarcastically. Oh, I'm proud of you for following my traditions. Now let me tell you one more way you failed. But look down at verse 17. And in verse 17, he says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. So in verse 2, he said, I praise you. And in 17, he says, Now I'm going to get back to not praising you. So that means what happened between those two verses, between verse 2 and verse 17, must be something that he is praising them for. They're doing the tradition. They're keeping the tradition, whatever the tradition might be. Look at verse 16. I'll show you one more thing. He says, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I'm telling you a tradition that all the churches everywhere always keep. Now that's just nuts. Have you ever seen any tradition that all churches everywhere always keep? I mean, for crying out loud, some churches are on Sunday, some churches are on Saturday, some churches use rock music, some churches use organ music, some churches don't use any instrumentation and they just sing, some churches use instrumentation but they only sing psalms from the Bible, some churches make women wear head coverings and some churches don't, some churches the men have to have a particular kind of beard and some churches don't. There are all kinds of things that churches differ over, but Paul is saying here is one tradition that the Corinthians of all people were doing and every other church was doing it also. And the tradition, would you know, is that while praying or prophesying, women would put something on their heads and men would not. Apparently, they're keeping the tradition. Apparently, there's some people who are trying to be contentious about it, but they're still keeping it. And so Paul, in this passage that we're looking at, is taking a tradition that they already do 
a tradition he never describes in detail, a tradition we can't find in history, but it's a tradition that they've been doing, and so he doesn't give any details, but he does tell them why. Here it is, write this down. The churches have a tradition, and Paul is going to tell them why they have the tradition. We get to hear the half of the conversation where Paul describes the why, not the details of the what. So we can't use this passage as a description for too much what, but we definitely should understand the why. So let's dig into it. Verse 3. He says this, but I want you to realize, so you're holding the traditions, so now I want you to realize something. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. The first thing Paul does is he gets to some doctrine. He says there is a fundamental doctrinal principle that I want to cover with you, and the doctrine is The head of every woman is a man, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. It's a weird, weird set of things. I thought I would visualize it to you today in the form of stick people. So here's some stick figures. We have God, Christ, man, woman in the order that Paul seems to arrange them in this passage. Now, what does God look like? We don't know, so I just made it a yellow circle, okay? God has no body. He is spirit. He has no form. No one has ever seen his face. That's, that's what we understand about, about God. Jesus has a body. He came to this earth. The Son of God took on flesh. He came to this earth. He is God together with God the Father. God the Father and God the Son are both God, but somehow the Father never took on a body and the Son did. And so Christ has a body. Then we've got man and we've got woman and I made the man blue, I made the woman pink, I made Christ green just because I'm trying to be somewhat stereotypical and I don't know what green means. So there you go. I just thought it was kind of cool and God's all shiny yellow. So here we go. So the question is, what does head mean? When it says that God is the head of Christ, what does that mean? You have three options. Option number one, source. Option number two, reflection, identity, representative, or something like that. And option number three, you have authority. These are your three options. Why are they your three options? Because in the Greek culture, there was only one option for the word head. Head could mean your physical head, or it could mean the source of something, like the head of a river would be the source of the river. Or your head could be the source of life for the rest of your body. Food goes in here. You know, something along those lines. The head is the source. In Greek culture, that's the only metaphorical meaning that head ever had. But in Hebrew culture, there were two other metaphors. In Hebrew culture, the metaphor of representation or identity and the metaphor of authority both persisted. Let me show you in the book of Psalms where we find this representational metaphor of the word head. Psalm 27, David says, Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. My heart says of you, seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. David says, my head will be exalted above my enemies. Does that mean only his head will be exalted above his enemies? I sure hope the rest of the body goes with him. But the head is a representative item of the entire person. The head represents the whole person. It's his identity. It's who he is. Plus, notice it says there at the bottom, I seek God's face. Does he only care about God's face? God who is spirit and has no face? No. Face is a metaphor there for the entire reality of who God is. I'm seeking your identity. I'm seeking to know you, to have a relationship with you. And so face, head, this Hebrew metaphor refers to the identity of the person. But it also can refer to authority. Take a look at this other psalm, Psalm 18. Psalm 18.43, David says, You've delivered me from the attacks of the people. You've made me the head of nations. People I did not know now serve me. Head there is definitely an authoritative kind of metaphor. I'm in charge now. Other people serve me. So now let's go back to our stick people and find out which head metaphor seems to make the most sense. The first metaphor is giving life and receiving life. Can we say there's this giving life and receiving life metaphor from God to Christ? Well, You can say that God is the Father, and Jesus is the Son, 
And so you've got this, you've got this father-son metaphor. And so metaphorically, God gives life to the son. But Jesus never says that. He says the son has life in himself. Uh, we also know from Paul's writings that God created everything. Everything is from the father, but it's through Christ. In other words, all that has been created came from the Father and through Jesus. Both of them existed before anything else together at the same time, and the Father never created the Son. They've always been eternally God. Somehow. We don't understand the Trinity, but we have to say that the give life and receive life doesn't fit in that relationship between God and Christ. It does between Christ and man. Christ gives us, gives his life so that we could have eternal life and we receive that life. It actually fits between man and woman. The original creation story tells us that man was made first and that God took a rib out of the man and he made a woman. So the woman came out of man. When God made Eve, he brought Eve to Adam and Adam uh, even named her. He gave her an identity. He said, you are Eve, going to be the father of all, all the living. In fact, when God first brought Eve to Adam, Adam just went, whoa, man. And that's how, just checking to see if you're awake. You're not, but we'll keep going. So uh, giving life and receiving life is one of the metaphors and it only works for some of them. Let's look at the next metaphor. What about identity? Well, I just mentioned that uh, Adam gave an identity to Eve when he named her as woman and then also named her as Eve. So he gave her a sense of identity and she bears the image of the man-ish because she was made to suit him, but she also bears the image of God more directly, we know. And so it doesn't talk totally work, but it kind of works. What about Christ and man? Yeah, we have been made and we are being made in the image of Christ. That's what, that's what we as human beings are supposed to be. We're supposed to represent Jesus, bear his image. And then God made Christ in his own image when he says, you are the image of the invisible God. It's not that Jesus was somehow created at some point, that he became the image of God. It's just that Jesus is, who he is, is the image of God. It says in Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God. We find out that Jesus would say that he, if you have seen him, you have seen the Father. And so if you want to say the image relationship, yeah, that does go from the Father to the Son. But it doesn't work perfectly in all of the cases because the woman doesn't bear the image of the man. What about the third one? Authority. One person holds authority and the other person chooses submission. Does that happen between the father and the son? Actually, yes. Jesus says, I do nothing but my father tells me. Does that happen between Christ and men? Actually, yes. Jesus is the Lord. And we submit to him as our Lord. Not because he forces us, but because he gives us the opportunity to choose. What about between the man and the woman? Does the man hold authority? Does the woman choose submission? Well, actually, in Ephesians chapter 5, we are told in a husband and wife relationship at least, we are told that the husband should love the wife and the wife should submit to the husband. And the word submission is often used in that kind of context. So there's this kind of submissiveness of an attitude that the Bible teaches from women to men. This isn't every woman submits to every man, and it's not that Paul's talking about specific women and specific men. It's just a generic kind of general attitude. And it's not a submission that says any one of these is less valuable. Would you say that Jesus is less valuable than the Father? No. It's a choice. It's a decision of relationship that there's an authority relationship that I choose to enter into. In fact, in Corinthians itself, later on, we're going to find a time where Paul would say that it the end of time, Jesus himself will hand the kingdom over to his father so that God may be all in all. In other words, this idea of Jesus submitting to his heavenly father is present in scripture. This is the only headship metaphor that works well for all of these relationships. So it's possibly that's the one that Paul is talking about. Or maybe Paul is just trying to play an interesting game with language and metaphor. Okay, so I'm going to stay with the stick people just for about two more minutes. Follow me on this one. This gets weird. It's a little bit stickception, you know, in, inception with stick people. Here, here we go. It is first, if the head of Christ is God, 
What does that look like? Here's my depiction. So Christ, his head, is God. I just put a G there with a shiny yellow circle around it. So when you see Jesus, what you see is you see God. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. When you see Jesus, you encounter the Father. Everything that there is about the Father, you encounter. But it also says that Christ is the head of the man. So what happens there? Okay? So if Christ is the head of the man, then you take who Christ is and make that the head of the man. And when you look at the man, what do you see? You see Jesus. You see everything that Jesus is. That's at least what you should see. That's the idea of us living in the image of Christ. So when you look at a man, you should see the image of Jesus. That should be the identity that you're relating to. And then if man is the head of the woman, well, here's your inception. Um, So you you look at the woman and what you should see, according to Paul, is you should see a person with something else on top. You should see a person, a full person, a real person, with something else on top. In in a kind of weird way, Paul is using this elaborate sort of metaphor thing to say that women should have something on their heads physically, while men should not. Look at verse 4. I'll show you this. I mean, we've only made it through three verses for crying out loud. Verse four, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. See, if the man covers his head, his head is supposed to be Christ. And so he's kind of hiding Christ. And so it's a dishonoring move for the man to cover his head. But Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head because the covering on her head was Christ, right? And so if she uncovers her head, then she has removed Christ. That's sort of the metaphor Paul is playing with here. If, he, if she uncovers her head, she dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Okay, there, there are multiple things going on here. And so let me just outline them, give you a couple blanks to fill in. First of all is this. My physical head models my spiritual head. There's something true that happens in my physical body that represents what's happening in my spiritual body. I can do things with my physical body to represent what's true about me spiritually. And so Paul says what you do with your physical head does, it plays into what's really going on in the spiritual world. But here's the next one. I find this one to be interesting. He says, if a woman prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, it's just like having short hair. Okay, so here's the logic. Uncovered hair is like short hair or baldness. One of those two. And if short hair or baldness for a woman is unacceptable, if it brings shame, which in their society it did, women back then didn't wear their hair super short and they did not shave their heads. If their heads were shaved, it was a sign of either sickness or slavery of some kind. And so it was a disgraceful thing for a woman to have her hair cut that short back then in that society. And so Paul says, if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut short, then she should cover it. So this is weird. Because the normal uh, societal accepted way for a woman to be is to have moderately long or long hair. That was the normal way. But Paul says when you go to church, when the woman is praying or prophesying in church, she should go the extra mile and put something on her head to doubly symbolize this. Isn't that interesting? He says if she doesn't have the covering, it's like having short hair. Long hair, normal hair isn't enough. In worship, something more needs to show up. Normal life, it's fine. But in worship, something more needs to show up. Write it down this way. When I'm leading, especially when I'm leading a context of worship, when I'm leading, I am me representing more. I am me representing more. So it's not just enough to be me. I need to be me who recognizes that I am representing something more. And so I need to be a version of me that's a little bit heightened. Okay? 
Now, we're, we're making it through this slowly but surely, but before we go any farther, I want you to notice something that I think is utterly essential for this entire chapter. See, so far what I've said is I've said that women are different from men. I've said that there's a kind of hierarchical seeming authority that Paul is talking about between women and men, that somehow men are uh, in a headship relationship uh, with women, that somehow women are in a submissive relationship with men. And if I were to, if you were to leave this room right now, you might be upset with me for forever, or you might tell one of your coworkers this particular idea, and they might get the wrong idea about what our church teaches and what Apostle Paul teaches, and someone might say, well, for crying out loud, we had a lady on stage today right here who wasn't wearing anything on her head. And she was singing. She was like leading worship. We had, a, we had a couple other ladies and they didn't have hats on either. So Jeff, what are you talking about? Hang on for a second. We're going to come to that in a little bit. What we're going to do now is I want to point out a fact. Paul says, when a man prays or prophesies, and then he finishes his sentence, And he says, when a woman prays or prophesies, and he finishes his sentence. In other words, in the context of the church, what men are doing, women are doing. Did you pick up on that? When a man prays or prophesies, he should look this way. When a woman prays or prophesies, she should look this way. But what he says is, both of them are doing the same things. This is, listen, there's some churches that have gone on, on some sort of an idea that says women should never do some of the things that are in a church. Women should never do any sort of public praying in church on the stage. Women should never speak God's word from the stage. And yet Paul is saying, wait a minute, when the woman prays, something should be true. When the woman prophesies, prophesies for crying out loud, that's speaking God's truth to the people of God. When the woman prophesies, that something should be true. Paul is saying women get to be leaders in Christian worship. That's phenomenal. He says that what the men are doing, the women are also doing. They just look different when they're doing it. Before we go any farther, that's important for you. Paul is not saying women are less valuable. He's not saying women are less significant. He's not saying that women have all these sorts of extra restrictions on them. He's saying that we have this liberty in Christ to be who we really are. And woman, if you are going to be who you really are, there's this symbolic thing that I want to be true about you. And men, if you're going to be who you really are, there's this symbolic thing I want to be true about you. But they're both leading in worship. Go to verse 7. He says, a man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God. Again, it's this representation that the man is somehow representing God. And so if he covers that, he's somehow causing disgrace. Then it says, uh, but woman is the glory of man. In other words, somehow woman is bringing some sort of glory uh, to to men. Uh, I'll just explain this real, real briefly. When God made Adam, he created Adam, he put him in the garden, okay? He created Adam and gave him a job. He said, you're supposed to take care of all this place, not just this garden, the whole world. You're supposed to take care of it. He gave Adam a job. He said also to Adam, by the way, you're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the entire earth. Now, Adam, I don't know if you know this, but Adam couldn't do that job. He couldn't. He was absolutely incapable of accomplishing large portions of that task. He could not do it. And so God looks down at Adam and he says, you know what? It's not good for you to be alone. I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to make a helper suitable for you. And so here's Adam, incapable of living out his design. And so God brings a woman so that now he can live out his design. Without the woman, the man is helpless. Without the woman, the man cannot live out his design. He cannot be the person he was designed by God to be. He cannot experience the glory of walking in God's will for his life. He cannot. But with the woman, he can. When Paul says that the woman is the glory of man, you better believe this statement is true. Behind every good man is a way better woman. It's just the way. That's just the way it's always been. God has made that relationship to be one of maximizing potential. 
That doesn't mean the woman is only a helper. That doesn't mean the woman only gets her identity when she's in a relationship with a man. That doesn't mean any of these things can be applied to this only word. God made the woman to be a full representative of his image. He made the woman to be a a full uh, leader in the context of his family. Women are great. God made them to be the thing that makes the rest of the world actually work. And so this is a fabulous thing. It's not that she only exists for him, but it's also that God has somehow created created this thing to be in this harmonious relationship. And so both things can happen at the same time. Women are incredibly valuable and they also bear this relationship with men that Paul is trying to emphasize is a beautiful thing, a glorious thing. Keep going though, verse 8. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. You see, it was the woman who came out of that first man. God took that rib, made the woman. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. God made the woman for the man. Skip verse 10 for just a moment, because Paul realizes what he just said might be taken wrong by a bunch of people who like to take verses out of context. So let's look at verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, and everything comes from God. In other words, guy, if you think you're special, just remember you came out of a woman. See, it happened so that the woman was created for the man, but since that moment, every other man who ever came onto this planet came from a woman. You owe your existence to a woman. There's no priority of value where men are like here and women are here. No, there's just this arrangement where God says, I've made you and you're going to be who I made you to be. But verse 10, that's the verse that's just weird because that's the verse where all the different English translations add all these extra words to it. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. The footnote in the NIV says a sign of authority on her head because of the angels. It's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. Listen, all I can say is this. It is abundantly clear from the nature of the Greek language that the way the NIV translates this is basically the only way to translate it. It is abundantly clear from the nature of the in the nature of the Greek language, that you cannot read this without saying the woman possesses her own authority. You have to read it that way. The only time authority as a word shows up in the passage is when the woman has the authority. This is fascinating. The woman has the authority. The question is, how does she use the authority? She is supposed to have authority over her own head. In other words, the things that are supposed to happen to your head, you're the only one who can make it happen. The things that are supposed to happen to your head, you're the only one who gets to do it. No man gets to come along you and tell you which hat to wear or tell you that you're supposed to wear a hat and make you wear a hat. No man can do that. You're the woman. You have the freedom to make this decision. You have the authority to make this decision. So make it right. That's what Paul's saying. But then there's that weird thing about the angels. So before I get to the angels, let me just summarize this to you. Write this down as fill in the blanks. A woman should choose. She should take charge in expressing who she really is in God's created order. See, Paul has been talking about this creation order thing that's going on, and now he says the woman needs to lay claim to it. She needs to choose it. She needs to embrace this authority and choose Now, I think the word submission is a proper word to follow that, but Paul doesn't use that here. Instead, he's only choosing the symbol. So the people back then, the ladies back then, he was saying, you need to choose to cover your head when you are praying and prophesying. Why would that be an issue? All the churches are doing it. Why would it be an issue? That means that some women didn't want to wear something on their heads. Why would they not want to wear something on their heads if all of this symbolism associates with it? Well, maybe that's where this angels thing comes from. He says, because of the angels. I'm going to take you back to our stick people. Where do you put the angel? So uh, God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. Where do you put the angel? There's only one place, right? 
The only place to put the angel is right there at the end. Paul never says the woman is the head of the angels. He doesn't go that far. But there's only one place for angels to fit in this scenario. They can't be to the left of God. They can't be in the middle of any of these things because of the arrangement that we are talked about here. So where do they go? They have to go down at the end. Now, I'll prove this point to you because earlier in the same book that we looked at, in the same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, look at what Paul said about the angels. He said, do you not know that we will judge angels? Okay, so here's the deal. Scholars think, we've tried to reconstruct this story, and we think this is what's going on. The people in Corinth were so eager to get that spiritual knowledge, that hyper-spiritual knowledge, that knowledge that we are connected to God. And Paul comes to their town and he tells them about Jesus. He tells them that one of these days Jesus is going to come back. He tells them about the Holy Spirit coming and taking up residence in a person's life. He tells them about the fact that when we get resurrected to be with Jesus, our bodies are going to be transformed and we're going to be like heavenly-like beings. And so the people in Corinth are all excited about this idea of the superhuman future that they're going to have. And because of their Greek religious culture, they believe they're spiritual beings above humans. They're humans and they're spiritual beings above humans. And since we're now Christians, we're going to use the word angels to refer to those spiritual beings above humans. So some of the Corinthians, probably this is all speculation, but we think it might've been that way. Some of the Corinthians probably were like, we should be like the angels now. So if the angels don't marry we shouldn't get married, 1 Corinthians 7. So if the angels, if, if they don't have any gender, maybe we shouldn't express any gender either. See, what they think is going on is that the Corinthians were so wrapped up in being like the angels that they were trying to pretend like they were the angels now. And so men were abandoning the idea of marriage and women were abandoning the idea of anything that looked like womanness or femininity. And so the theory is that the women were pretending to be androgynous, especially in the context of worship. Because in the context of worship, which in their society was always, almost always done by men, men were priests. And so in that society, if the woman wanted to act like a leader, she needed to minimize her femininity. And so what she would do is she would cut her hair. She would minimize all of these things so that she looked more androgynous. And Paul says, what are you nuts? Why would you want to be like the angels? Be like a human. Don't you know you're standing as a human being? And so he says to the women, be a real human woman. Look like who you are. You see, I think that's what he's talking about. He's trying to say, I want you to represent, I want you to look like who I've made you to be. Let's finish up this section on the head covering thing, verse 13. He says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. What does it mean that she's given the long hair as a covering? Okay, so here's a thought. When I was a kid, I uh, remember seeing the story of Adam and Eve. And the story of Adam and Eve was always represented to me in some sort of cartoon fashion or in something called a flannel graph and on a flannel or in a book, in a, you know, like a comic book type of thing. And so in the flannel graph form or in the comic book form or in the cartoon form, it always looked the same. Adam is standing behind a bush strategically placed. Okay. He's always behind a bush that is about yay high, right above his waistline. He's standing behind this very strategic bush. The problem is Eve is standing next to him and there is no strategically comparable bush for Eve and so she has long hair strategically placed. So is that what Paul's talking about? I don't think so. What Paul is talking about is he is addressing this idea that men are disgraced with short hair and women are not. How many of you have seen a picture of Jesus? I mean, not a photograph, because clearly the cameras weren't around back then, but have you seen any artwork representing Jesus? Have you? Almost every single one of them has him with what kind of hair? 
Long hair. Is he a Greek or is he a Jew? He's a Jew. Is Paul a Greek or a Jew? He's actually a Jew. A lot of people don't remember that, but he's a Jewish person. And let's think about some other things. Uh, Samson. Are you familiar with the story of Samson? Samson was a Jewish fellow, and he had long hair. In fact, when his hair got cut, that's when he lost his relationship with God in some way. And so as a result, that situation showed us that his hair being cut was a disgrace to Samson. Long hair was the preferred position for Samson to be in. Because there was this Old Testament vow called the Nazarite vow, where he made a commitment, I would never cut my hair. God told him, don't ever cut your hair, and I will be with you wherever you go. And so long hair was a symbol of God's presence with Samson. The same thing happened with John the Baptist. John the Baptist also took the Nazarite vow, so he would have had long hair. Jesus, John the Baptist's cousin, likely had long hair because at some point in time, he might have also taken this Nazarite vow. We don't know the details of that, but what we know is in the Jewish culture and in almost every other culture, men with long hair are considered cool. Have you seen the movie Aquaman? Thor, not the new ones, but the older ones. You know, the men with the long hair, there's something cool about that long hair dude. I don't know if you're into that kind of thing or not. It doesn't really matter to me. But almost every society has viewed men with long hair sometimes as being a cool thing. What is Paul talking about? Well, every society has valued men with long hair except for one, the Romans. It was a decree by Julius Caesar that men should have short hair. In fact, if you look at the statues from the ancient world, the Greek statues, long hair. Zeus, long hair. Socrates, long hair. But you look at the Roman statues, short hair for the men. What's fascinating is that Paul says, isn't it a disgrace for men to have short hair? And the only time it's ever been a disgrace for men, disgrace for men to have long hair, the only time it's ever been disgraceful for a man to have long hair is in the culture he's talking to. Is that not interesting? He says to the people in Corinth who are part of the Roman culture, don't you know it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair? But it was only disgraceful for them. See, here's the thing. At this point, we begin to realize that the whole deal Paul was talking about is just societal gender norms being okay, being something to embrace. He's saying in this document that men need to have their heads uncovered because long hair for a man is disgraceful. But it's only disgraceful for those people in that culture, at that city, at that time. The people back in Jerusalem, it wasn't disgraceful for them, for guys to have long hair. They were Jewish people. It was all over the place. But it was disgraceful in that culture at that time, in those people, for them to have this particular kind of haircut. And so Paul is saying, listen, don't you know, men look like men. Women look like women, especially when you're leading each other in worship. God wants you to be who he made you to be. Embrace it. Use your authority. Use your power to embrace this and be who you really are. Write it down this way. Christians choose to reflect gender norms to express the harmony of God's creation. Christians choose to reflect gender norms to express the harmony of God's creation. It doesn't mean that gender norms are all that bad. It also doesn't mean that we are forced to embrace all of them. What it means is God wants you to look like who you are. So that in this world, especially as Christians together, we look like we live in harmony, not uniformity. You see, if you read the rest of the chapter, which hopefully you will sometime this week, you'll see Paul talking about communion. But the point he makes about communion has nothing to do with the food. 
It has nothing to do with whether or not the food magically becomes the body and blood of Jesus or whether it doesn't. It has nothing to do with the details of that stuff. In fact, there's a passage in there where Paul talks about a person who eats communion improperly and later dies because God judges him. And so I grew up being freaked out and afraid that if I ate communion improperly, I might die. But if you pay attention, what does it mean to eat it properly? At the end of that passage, eating it properly means to recognize you're part of a body. And we're doing this together. You see, all of this is the same story over and over and over again. Paul says, I want you to live in unity. And when I say unity, I don't mean everybody's the same. I mean, you're going to embrace who God made you to be. You're going to fully take it on. And if God made you to be one particular way, you're going to embrace that. If God made you to be another particular way, you're going to embrace it. And you're going to live that way in front of God because we are one body. Write this down at the very bottom of your page. We must remember we are the body of Christ and how we live should reflect that truth. I'm going to try this week to post an article about the part of the chapter we didn't get to. But I just want to close with this idea. A lot of times in society we feel like we need to become something other than ourselves. Or we need to make ourselves into something that we want. When all the while God says, I've got a really beautiful plan worked out here. When he says something along the lines of he wants a, an, a relationship of submission, kind of authority between men and women, he's not talking about domineering authority. He's talking about the same kind of relationship the father has with the son. He's talking about the same relationship the church has with Jesus. He's talking about a relationship of, of relationship, of of someone leads and someone follows and it's beautiful when it happens right. He's talking about something that is just so perfect, so wonderful, so great. And I want you to experience it. Back in that society, women who were praying in church wore something on their heads. We don't do that. We don't practice that in our society today. That doesn't fit in our general norms. There's some churches where women wear hats, some churches where they don't, and we don't follow those norms, but that's okay. That's not the point. That's not what he's getting at here. What he's getting at here is I want you to live like the body of Christ. Play your part, play it well, play it beautifully, and live in that harmony. Listen, we're going to sing just a portion of our final song because we're running out of time, but I want to pray for you, and I want to ask you to ask God this question as you spend some time in reflection. Say, God, what does it mean for me to be who you made me to be? Just reflect on that question. Thank you for listening to this message. We believe that God has a full and fulfilling life in store for you, and we want to help you live it. For videos, resources, and more, visit us online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com. And as always, we want to encourage you to plug into a Christ-following community of faith wherever you are. Life is a journey, and no one should ever walk alone.